Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's episode, the first of 2016, features a discussion of the top economic policy issues of the day and in the presidential election. Also, you'll find out what's happening in Congress and on the campaign trail, and meet the new deputy director of the Brown Center on Education Policy. Before I get to the show, I want to remind you to email your comments or questions to experts who have been on this program to bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll get them answered in upcoming episodes. My guest here in the studio today is Ted Geyer, the Vice President and Director of Economic Studies and the Joseph A. Peckman Senior Fellow. Welcome to the show, Ted. Thanks, Fred. It's great to be here. First off, you are the Joseph A. Peckman Senior Fellow. I always like to ask guests who these people are. Who was Joseph Peckman? Well, uh, Joe, as he's known around the building, first of all, I should say I carry that title with great pride and even more humility. Joe was a titan in the field of economics, in particular public finance. He also was, in many ways, the father of the economic studies program, which I now direct. Uh, He was the director of economic studies for over 20 years, starting in the early 60s. He is extremely respected still among the program. Uh, He really laid the groundwork for our work in public finance and tax policy in many ways, uh, extremely influential in the 1986 Tax Reform Act. A lot of the seminal and impactful work done by the program on deregulation in the 70s and 80s, again, was under his guidance. Uh, the Brookings Papers on Economic Activity happened under his directorship. So just, uh, like I said, a, a extremely respected guy uh, within the profession and even more so uh, within the building at Brookings in Economic Studies. Let's focus on the U.S. economy today. Uh, at the start of 2016, what would you say is going well? It's good to start on a positive note. If you looked over the last year, in fact, over the last few years, our our labor market has been improving quite steadily, uh, over 200,000 jobs a month created. Now, that's probably slowed last year compared to the year before and probably will continue to slow this year. But in all measures of how much slack was in the labor market, how much unused resources, labor resources were out there, which were considerable given the depth of the uh, recession, we've, I'd say, dug our way out and made some substantial progress. And the next step, which we look for going forward, is... Uh, as there becomes less and less slack in the labor market, you would hope to see and expect to see more uh, upward pre- pressure on wages, so uh, uh, larger paychecks. Uh, and we've been waiting for that, and we haven't been getting that in the, uh, uh, throughout the recovery. But I think there's some optimism that we're getting there, uh, that we should see uh, – starting to see an increase in wages – uh, I think that is also motivating the recent actions by the Federal Reserve. So I'd say that's a bright spot. The healing labor market is coming close. Now, there's still lots of things wrong with it, but it's it's getting much, much closer and much, much healthier than it was before. If I were to look for other bright spots, and I should condition this on – I think every – Economists should condition their forecasts uh, with a, a great deal of humility uh, and uncertainty because I've, I've said this in years past. But the housing market, which actually did have a decent year, uh, as we know, we had a housing crisis which instigated the, the financial crisis and the recession, and it took quite a long time to dig out of that. But I think all indications are that there is still more pent-up demand in housing, so you would expect to see – more home construction, more single-family home construction. You would expect to see as the labor market improves more young adults moving out of their parents' house, which creates more household formation, which again feeds into 
housing construction, residential investment. So those are all positive things as far as the broader economy goes. So those are the, uh, at least off the top of my head, the rays of light that I see. Okay. So that's some good news. Uh, but certainly there might be some uh, spots of not so good news. What Can you address those kinds of things? Well, economics is known as the dismal science. <laughs> Uh, sometimes uh, I think misleadingly so, but there there are some spots of not so good news too. So what we've seen over the last few years is we we've seen strong gains in the labor market, but yet our uh, GDP, our economic growth, has pretty much been two percent each year. And if anything, you go through this uh, a little bit like Groundhog's Day. Every year, we, we kick off the year thinking next year is going to be three percent growth, and we usually wind up at two percent growth. And you know, 2% to 3% doesn't sound like a big deal, but it's a big deal. Uh, the power of compound interest, the difference between 2% growth year over year versus 3% growth is considerable when it comes to just the living standards of your typical American. So what this means is, and kind of the one of the big vexing questions of the day is, we keep adding jobs and the labor market's improving, but we're not growing strongly. And so what that indicates is that our productivity growth is low, meaning how much stuff we're producing per unit of labor isn't growing as much as it has historically. Uh, this has actually been a problem now for the last decade or so. Uh, and productivity, you know, how much we can turn our human capital uh, into uh, productive, uh, uh, directed and productive means to get goods and services is really the engine of our living standards. And so it's kind of a quandary. There's a big debate going on. Are we measuring it wrong? Or is is it that productivity low? Is it that it's going to snap up back soon? Is it that we're measuring it incorrectly? These are kind of wonkish debates, but they have very real consequences. But if you were to look at the downside, the downside is low productivity, low growth. And then, you know, looking forward, I always, as I said, am very hesitant to be a forecaster, but there are a lot of external threats to our economy outside the United States. Uh, we have a slowdown underway in China, which has some ramifications for us. Europe is still not by any means healthy, which again has ramifications for us. And then there's a lot of kind of global security issues uh, that are you know very, very difficult to predict, but also have economic consequences. Which of these two issues uh, do you think people, American workers, feel the most strongly? This uh, The wages issues, which I've read a lot about, or this productivity uh, issue that you've talked about, which which is the one that really is kind of at the heart of the way Americans feel about the economy? Well, I think it's it's largely the same issue. Productivity is kind of the economist wonkish way of looking at it because we see improving productivity as an engine to uh, uh, to increases in wages. Uh, but if you look in the campaign trail and if you look at a lot of the kind of populism that's out there as well, I think it's very much largely motivated by stagnant wages, especially you know in the, in the middle of the income distribution. And this is in many ways, it's not really a new phenomenon. Uh, we've had stronger growth in the economy since the 70s, but as far as the median household, there hasn't been nearly as strong the, – the, the growth in the broader economy hasn't translated so much to the median household. And I think that is putting all sorts of social pressures, all sorts of uh, despair even uh, among the population, understandably so. When we kind of take a perhaps a little bit too cool-hearted look at it, where that's where we're getting issues of productivity. How can we make workers more product productive and not just on the top of the income distribution but throughout in order to uh, translate into better li living standards for the typical American? Well, let's segue from there to some of the uh, the solutions 
how do we make Americans more productive? Well, it's 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 extremely difficult. There's some there's so many different factors in play. There is some you know in in the economics world we kind of break it into macro and and micro policies. The macro policies, obviously, uh, first and foremost, are the Federal Reserve and their monetary policies trying to spur enough demand that we actually are not below our potential. So you can think of the fact that you have issues of productivity. How productive are we? How much economic output can we produce? And if the economy is malfunctioning in some sense because there's lack of demand, that's where the Fed comes in. But then there's the question of what is our economic potential? What are those things that can drive that? And that's where things get a little bit more complicated. Uh, I tend to be... uh, uh, I tend to suffer a little bit, as all economists do. There's a famous joke in economics about the economist looking for his keys under the street lamp, and he, he didn't necessarily drop it there, but that's where he can see. So I focus a little bit too much maybe on my areas, but my areas, especially recently, are in kind of regulatory policy. And it's extremely hard to quantify what the impacts are on the broader economy, but there's uh, issues of what is the regulatory burden, how much is this inhibiting innovation, new firm production, uh, and a lot of the ideas that I kind of look at are issues of how we can streamline regulation, how we can reduce it, how we can get uh, you know understanding that there are great needs for a, a, a regulatory policy. Right now, in many ways, it's such a mess that it does, in some sense, lead to an aggregate burden on the economy. There are other issues, again, on the micro side, but I think are real issues, and I actually commend uh, former Brookings uh, senior fellow Jason Furman is the head of the CEA. They do, they've put out many good publications under his directorship there, but a few in just in recent years uh, that he's focused on, uh, one is on zoning issues, for example. So if you think about trying to be productive, what you want is you want people to go to the locations and have relatively low-cost mobility to move those pl- to those places that are uh, more productive and will make them more productive. To the extent that you have strict zoning regulations, which tend to be local regulations, that could inhibit that movement. So you can think of a high-productive urban area, but there's strict limits on housing, so the housing costs are really expensive. That might be just a barrier enough for for that kind of mobility for uh, for people to be drawn to that. Uh, Issues of occupational licensing, which have increased tremendously over the last few decades. Again, as with regulation, there are reasons for occupational licensing. You want to make sure that if you're getting a core service that the person who's providing it has been certified in some sense and that uh, uh, that is legitimate. But uh, I think in many ways we've gone to the extreme where it essentially is acting more as a barrier to entry into that industry, again, limiting the productivity of workers. So these are just kind of a, a, a smattering of issues that I think could could lead to it. But uh, it's a big problem uh, and something that, uh, if anything, if we're focusing uh, our attentions on anything, it should be on this on this, on this this one issue. And I'll, I'll direct listeners to uh, our website, uh, brookings.edu slash economic which is uh, full of other ideas uh, from the program that you lead. Let's take a quick break now to hear from John Hudak on Congress and the election, and then we'll come back to the conversation with Ted, after which stay tuned for our coffee break with Brown Center Deputy Director Michael Hansen, who described his childhood as nomadic. This week, the United States Congress convenes the second session of the 114th Congress, and it will be largely a light week in terms of actual action. Congress will be taking up uh, what has now become a relatively common bit of legislation, that being a repeal of the Affordable Care Act. The House plans on voting on that this week to ring in the new Congress. 
uh, a bill that will likely pass the House will have trouble passing the Senate, and if it by some chance arrived on the president's desk, would surely be vetoed. Beyond that, not much will be happening in the halls of Congress, but there will be plenty of rhetoric coming out of the mouths of our elected officials. As President Obama announces new executive actions on guns, you can be sure that gun rights supporters, both in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, will have some harsh words for the president, while gun safety supporters will come to the president's aid in what will be a rollout of a series of actions intended to strengthen America's gun laws and keep Americans safer. That's what's happening this week in Congress, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what's going to be happening over the next year. Given that 2016 is a presidential election year, here at the Brookings Cafeteria podcast, we'll be introducing a new segment about what's happening on the campaign trail. This will be an occasional wrap-up of what's been going on first in the presidential primaries and then after the party conventions, what's happening in the race to elect a new president in November. This week on the campaign trail, the Democratic and Republican campaigns are coming back from their Christmas and New Year's break and starting to barnstorm quite hard in Iowa and New Hampshire as the primaries and caucuses in those states are just a few weeks away. Uh, Rhetoric, not just across the parties, but within the parties is getting quite heated with campaign ads and stump speeches that are getting very personal very quickly. As we move closer to Iowa and New Hampshire, that rhetoric will ramp up. And after those uh, first races, we'll have a pretty good idea of uh, where the field is going, who the strongest contenders are, and likely see a few dropouts along the way. And now back with Ted Geyer here in the studio. Ted, what do you think are the most important economic stories that people are reading about right now as they start to think about the presidential election? You know, it's a good question. Uh, I can tell you what has kind of hit me the most and what I think has resonated with me the most, uh, at least in recent months. This perhaps is not being read by your typical uh, voter out there, but there was an extremely interesting and impactful study by two economists from Princeton. I think it came out sometime in the fall. I want to say September, October. So this was Ann Case and Angus Deaton, economists at, at Princeton. So they had a short little piece that was looking at uh, the mortality rate for middle-aged American whites, non-Hispanic whites. Uh, the reason why this just has resonated with me since I saw the study and I think has garnered a decent bit of conversation is the results were so shocking. Uh, and what they found was the mortality rates for middle-aged uh, non-Hispanic whites has climbed, has increased, uh, since the late 1990s, so around from 1999 to I think they looked through 2013. Now, if you compare it to other countries, other countries have been trending the same way that the U.S. mortality rate had been trending, including for this uh, subgroup, which is about a 2% decline in mortality each year. Now they're looking at a half a percentage uh, increase uh, for this group, and it didn't affect Hispanics and it didn't affect uh, African Americans. It's a shocking, shocking finding. Uh, And if you dig a little bit into what they've done, they kind of decomposed it to try and look at the causes. And what you're seeing is this mortality increase for for these middle-aged whites is being driven by alcohol and drug-related poisonings, things, alcohol-related illnesses like liver disease, and suicides, which has gone up precipitously. So it's, again, a glaring 
issue. And so I think in the paper they even compare it to the AIDS epidemic uh, in, in the 80s. But of course, it hasn't gotten the media attention nearly, uh, understandably in some sense, that the AIDS epidemic did. But it's a shocking increase in mortality. And so to me, it gets into some of the issues we were talking about before when we were talking about stagnant medium median wages. So I don't want to draw too much into it. There's lots of different theories about why this is happening, one of which could be some sort of economic despair. Although then you wonder why it's hitting whites more than it is others. And they found it's primarily hitting low education whites. Uh, but it's a shocking thing that these three, the suicides, alcohol, and drug-related uh, poisonings are enough to drive the overall mortality rate for this group up. And, uh, you know, there are other policy aspects to it. We've... Uh, in many ways, understandable ways, liberalize the prescription, the use of prescription painkillers. And so that could lead to more poisonings, for example, or even suicides. And so lots of fascinating questions come out of it. But the the, uh, at least in the top of my mind, the last few months, it's just a study that's really stuck with me. I think it was featured in the New York Times. And so it did get some of the attention deserved. But uh, if anything, it deserves more attention. Okay, that's by Case and Deaton at Princeton. So I'll link to that uh, in the show notes on our uh, on our website. So um, I, I doubt this is an issue that the presidential candidates are, uh, are going to bring up. Uh, what, what issues uh, are they focusing on? What issues do you think they should be focusing on? Well, I have to say in recent months, there's all sorts of aspects of the campaign that I, I find despairing. But uh, uh, one small aspect is I don't think there is, has been much of a – enough of a focus on the economic uh, state of things and economic policies. So in many ways, there is a vacuum out there. Uh, uh, now, somewhat to their credit, I think some people have – some candidates have identified the importance of growth. Now, that may be a little bit too easy to say we need more growth. Uh, economic growth, as we talked about before, uh, is driven by productivity increases and you know, saying you want something isn't the same thing as saying how you're going to get it and these things are complicated. One thing that I think always gets lost in these campaigns and it's, I think, a result of – uh, of the politics behind it is 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 our long-term fiscal uh, uh, issues, uh, specifically with entitlements. It's sometimes talked about. It's almost never addressed uh, with specific policies, which is sort of understandable. You know, when you're running a campaign, there's only so specific so, – uh, there's only so much specifics you can provide in a politically charged atmosphere, uh, especially with an issue that will take some, uh, some amount of pain to address. But – in recent years, my sense is as we were coming out of the recession and as the recovery was slow, it was understandable that we would de-emphasize our long-term fiscal issues because we had greater short-term issues. Uh, and there we're talking about like the deficit versus the debt and long-term spending on health care and social security. Yeah, so we talk about that. Uh, but, the you know, this shouldn't be – it shouldn't be – you know, it's like you, know, you should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. The – the the story isn't a complicated one. We face some pretty stark forecasts as far as our long-term fiscal outlook uh, goes. At the same time, when we were experienced going through coming out of the recession, was not the time to be slashing uh, spending programs uh, because the fiscal problems, for the most part, are long-term. They're there. They're predictable um, by and large. And so the responsible thing to do is to prepare for the future. Uh, what I worry about now, especially in a campaign atmosphere, is there's been too much focus on the short term and not enough on these long term issues. And, you know, you have Social Security, you have Medicare, and even more 
immediately, and this kind of actually does relate to the issue I talked about before with the the uh, case in Deaton paper, we have disability. Disability roles have increased. There's been extreme financial strain on our disability insurance. So this is going to be more binding of a concern. It's not as big of an issue as Social Security and even more so Medicare, but it is something that's going to present earlier. But these are the issues that you don't you don't really hear uh, because it may take some tough decisions and uh, uh, and that's not always conducive for a political ca- campaign. During a, a presidency, president often gets blamed for when the economy goes poorly, doesn't often get a lot of credit when it goes well. Then we look back in history and we try to say, oh, well, the economy improved at this time because of these policies and this president. Now, you've worked in both the Treasury Department and uh, in the White House and the President's Council of Economic Advisors. What influence does the federal government really have on the economy? So it's a good question, and I think uh, by and large – the kind of high-level answer is I do think the president gets way too much credit and way too much blame. But of course, there are, there are influential things that any administration can uh, can do. And you kind of ask two questions. What, what What's the role or what's the impact of the president? What's the impact of the government? Those aren't always necessarily the same thing. They are related. I think the Federal Reserve is tremendously impactful. How they manage this tightening, which started in December, is I think – uh, a critical issue for at least in the uh, medium term for our economy. And the president does have an influence over the Federal Reserve in the sense that the uh, uh, appointing people to the board. So that is a that is an important presidential role. And you can look back at previous presidents and kind of critique uh, how well they did uh, on that measure. But if you're looking specifically at federal policy outside of monetary policy, fiscal policy, I could talk about my roles. My roles in both the Treasury and the CEA, and I think in some sense, I was uh, constitutionally amenable to this role. Uh, I kind of approach so much – there's so many weeds out there. There's so many bad policy and even more bad policy ideas that get bandied about in any discussions. And you know, the impulse is always understandably when there's a problem or perceived problems that we need to do something and you got lots of different voices wanting to do something. And I think the role of an economist especially within administration is to kind of – uh, take a critical evaluation. Sometimes doing something makes things worse, uh, and so there are so many. You know, if you, I used to tell myself, if we can, you know, if we can stop one bad idea, I've earned my paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no matter how big or small those ideas come, but undoubtedly there are more issues that are uh, instrumental for for the for the president. And then we've seen in the recent recession, and Obama has been extremely instrumental when you talk about this uh, fiscal stimulus. We talk about Dodd Frank. The ACA. I mean, these are impactful legislations that did take presidential leadership. Whether or not you think they're good or bad for the economy is a is a different question, uh, but they are definitely meaningful. So, uh, you know, I've often heard it. You know, people sometimes don't vote, or it doesn't matter. It, these elections do have serious consequences when it comes to the economy. Well, I'll leave it at that. Thanks for joining me today, Ted. My pleasure. Thanks, Fred. You can learn more about Ted Gare and economic research and ideas on our website at Brookings.edu/economics. And now, Brown Center Deputy Director Michael Hansen on his top priorities for education policy and a book recommendation about relationships. I'm Mike Hansen, and I'm a senior fellow and deputy director at the Brown Center on Education Policy. Whenever I'm asked where I'm from, I always have a hard time responding in just one sentence. You see, my family moved around a lot growing up. I lived for various times in Iowa, North Carolina, Arizona, Texas, and Utah. Um, My dad described us as sort of modern-day nomads. However, 
Uh, I spent uh, most of my formative years in El Paso, Texas, and I moved uh, during high school to St. George, Utah, and that's where I graduated from high school. So I feel like that's probably the area that I have the most um, enduring sense of home. I never aspired to be a scholar growing up. I don't recall having any associations with people with PhDs or with um, with any college professors or academia or the like, um, at least not until I was uh, in high school where we uh, we developed a friendship, a family friendship with a, a college professor who lived just around the corner from our home and he taught at the local college in St. George, Utah. And um, I guess from that relationship, I I began to change my interests, my career interests, and I began to be more interested in wanting to be uh, a college professor. Uh, what I feel would be a really uh, top priority for uh, for education policy is uh, ensuring access to great teachers and really learning from the best teachers that are out there. A very core part of my research agenda right now is looking at ways where we can leverage the teacher workforce that we have to utilize them effectively to help them to uh, reach more kids and um, and see what kind of policies are uh, can help to promote that uh, public policy goal. Currently, I'm working on a couple of different projects that are trying to evaluate different programs that have been put in place in schools as sort of experiments to try to uh, have effective teachers reach more kids and see how that works and how that, um, whether that promotes student learning as we expect or how it uh, affects teachers' engagement with, with students. So I feel like this is a really important issue. And there are other uh, various projects here and there. All The common theme across all of them are teachers and uh, teacher mobility. So this is a, a central area of my research agenda. A favorite book that re really resonated with me when I read it several years ago was a book called Bonds That Make Us Free by C. Terry Warner. And, and I do recommend that to others. Um, it's, a, it's a book that uh, examines our relationships and how we um, how we act in our relationships. And now these this could be uh, family relationships or uh, those with significant others or um, or even working relationships. And it examines this issue through the lens of introspection and understanding what you bring to the table. And to me, it was just very po powerful because um, I feel like relationships are important in my life and. Um, it was very helpful to understand the things that I can do to improve my relationships with those around me. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from our culture. Plus, thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and remember to send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.